Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. Have you ever noticed that conversations around food sometimes lead to little-known revelations? I recently sat down with my mom and asked her to talk about baking cookies during the holidays. Oh goodness, I love to make cookies and I would be up to two or three o'clock in the morning making cookies. What were you doing up so late at night making cookies? That's the secret life of mom that I didn't know about because <laughs> I was sleeping. And we hear about a mysterious cookie that vanishes from the grocery store. They just vanish, appear and then disappear out of nowhere like, like the aliens took them or something. Like, I don't know where they go. <laughs> and Caitlin shares her grandmother's recipe for Stalin, a special German sweetbread she makes each Christmas. It's like a smell or something that, or a song, you know, something that takes you back to that moment in time. And it, it makes me feel like there's that magic of the holidays again. And it really brings that all back to me. Today's show is all about food and holiday traditions. Stay with us inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Let me just say happy holidays, Caitlin. Um, we're recording and releasing these episodes in the midst of uh, the year-end holiday season. I think for a lot of people, that's Christmas. You know, for some folks, I know for sure, there's it's Hanukkah or Kwanzaa. For a lot of folks, it's the solstice. You know, And there's, there's sort of other embedded holidays through this midwinter stretch of late December, early January. So happy holidays to you. Yeah, happy holidays. And it's been a long year, but we made it. <laughs> we made it. And we are talking about generational ties around holiday food today. And for, for a lot of us, that's Christmas. So this is a, a Christmas food-centric episode that we'll be talking about. A lot of it is through this lens of this aspect of folk life that Caitlin and I have both reported on. And that's how these traditions can tie together generations and how traditions get passed on. And so we both actually spent a little time with uh, members of our family looking back on some of the traditions that we grew up with. So I've been quarantining with um, my grandmother, my Oma, for the past half year now. So we actually are in the same household. I had her make one of my favorite Christmas recipes that I grew up on called Stollen. It's like this German I don't want to say fruitcake, but I don't know what else to say. But it's not fruitcake, but a little bit like that. It's it's like more of a bread that's sweeter with a tiny bit of cake influence and some powdered sugar on top and pieces of fruit inside. So my Oma, her real name's Ilsa Tan, she and I actually made the recipe together a couple weeks ago. It's one that she even had around the holidays growing up in former East Germany. We started by putting all the ingredients in a big mixing bowl. First, five cups of flour. Here's my Oma. Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Das sind vier. Und noch einen. Would it not find one no, more? And one more. One more, yeah. Danke. Then comes the baking powder and spices, cinnamon and cardamom. So, and now, <clears throat> two cups of sugar. Almost. 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 
my Oma is an artist, so everything she does is a little, you know, it's not quite by the recipe. Like she'll say, oh, a handful of raisins, maybe more, or a knife tip of cinnamon, <laughs> a little more. And, um, and it, it was just, oh, here's t- t- yeah. three, three tablespoons of butter. Oh, the whole stick fell in. Right, exactly. <laughs> there's, a, there's a part where she's adding rum to the recipe. And it's supposed to be like two tablespoons in and And then she just goes, maybe a little more. You can also add other types of dried fruit and a couple handfuls of sliced almonds. Then you add two sticks of melted butter, a pint of sour cream, and two eggs. Let's see. Another one. And then you mix everything together. Back in the day, my Oma did that all by hand, but now we have an electric mixer. At this point, all the ingredients should create this thick, sticky dough with little pieces of dried fruit and almonds sticking out. And then put the loaves into the oven for about an hour, more or less. Oh, is it done? The stollen should have a golden brown color and honestly smell like Christmas. While it's still hot, make sure to paint some melted butter on top and... This is the most important part if you have a sweet tooth. Sprinkle a thick layer of powdered sugar. Then let the stelling cool and then slice it and enjoy. Does it taste okay? Just how I always remembered it. It's like sweet but not too sweet. That's right. Stellen has always been a part of my Christmases. Even living in West Virginia, my family sent me Stellen. But it wasn't until I did this interview with my Oma that I realized just how deep the tradition is. It turns out this recipe is from the early 1900s, from her mother, who made Stellen every year. And this was even during the hard times, like World War II, and then after when my Oma and her family lived under the control of the Russians in former East Germany. My mother always was able to get some some ingredients, and if we didn't get all of them, well, that's fine, and we have less, but... Um, yeah, it's you try your best to get get it going before Christmas. So and it must have been kind of like a small little highlight during the, you know, absolutely. during a very kind of dark years. Oh yeah, Christmas time. Yes, and even <clears throat> my brother was in a concentration camp <clears throat> for three years, and yet during the three years, my mother still made stolen. What I took away from this interview and baking with my Oma are two things. One, that there are often really rich stories behind our traditions. They all come from somewhere, right? And two, that even during hard years, like a worldwide pandemic, there's still some joy to be found around the holidays. So if you want to try this recipe for Stalin or any other recipes mentioned in this show, go to wvpublic.org. ask you a question about the stolen? Oh, please, please. So you talked about growing when you were growing up, you'd eat it while you were opening presents. Yes. And that's awesome. 
Have you like had it since then out of that context and been like, mm, not a sweet? I, <laughs> well, so kind of. I've had it, you know, moving away from my Oma, when I would see her around the holidays, she would always have Stalin around. You know, I would eat it. And honestly, it takes me back. It like makes me feel like a kid again. Even when I've been living in West Virginia, my mom and Oma have made Stalin and sent it to me. And it it's honestly just as good. It, it's like a smell or song, you know, something that takes you back to that moment in time. And it makes me think of being like a six-year-old girl in her Christmas dress on Christmas night. And it, it makes me feel like there's that magic of the holidays again and that Santa just brought me my presents. And it really brings that all back to me. And it's pretty special. So I don't, I love Stolen and I don't know how much of it is the memory and how much is that I genuinely just love the, the, the product that it is. Cause it's not that sweet, honestly, it's dense, you know, buttery and sour cream and uh, a dense bread, you know? I love how senses yeah. you know, can really bring back a memory. You know, it's hearing certain music, it's tasting something, it's certain smells. Maybe it's even the smell of the house and how that brings back this whole wave of memories. Mason, what are some things that bring you back to your holidays? Well, a big part of the holidays for me will always be the memory of growing up, my mom making tons of Christmas cookies. She grew up in the Allegheny Highlands, and I sat down with her recently to talk about all the foods we remember, including the cookies. What are some of your favorite cookies to make over the years? You've made a lot of cookies. There's the Hershey Kiss cookies. There's the sugar cookies, frosted and unfrosted variations, sprinkles. There's the fudge. There's peanut butter fudge. There's oatmeal raisin cookies. What are some of your favorite cookies that would you hold up as staples of your, your Christmas cookie uh, career? You pretty much have named it all. Because <laughs> I remember, oh, goodness, I love to make cookies and and you guys would go to bed at night and I would be up to two or three o'clock in the morning making cookies I would make the little Mexican wedding cookies and I would make the the fudges and the the sugar cookies what did what were you doing up so late at night making cookies I don't that's the secret life of mom that I didn't know about because <laughs> I was sleeping oh I love making cookies it was just so much fun and I would make all these different cookies. I just had this extra energy. And I didn't do it every night. But I remember, goodness, I could have an open house with all these cookies. But then, you know, I would give them to neighbors. And we would do a cookie exchange with some of my friends that their children were your age. And, and we would get together and have a cookie exchange. Where did you learn how to make fudge? I know that's something you've always done. And I grew up with it. Like, I remember um, there was a period where I didn't like it because it was too rich. And then I came back to it later, like, and realized how great it was. Where did you learn how to make that fudge? I'm, I learned it from my cookbook, from my Better Homes and Garden cookbook. It's one recipe I use all the time, but my mom made a... a, a, a chocolate fudge that was so good. We all look forward to having mom's chocolate fudge. It was shiny. She didn't use marshmallow cream, but she used black walnuts from the farm. 
And it was so good, and none of us had the recipe for that. Did she commission you all to go collect the nuts every year? Do you oh, remember? yeah. We would always go collect all kinds of black walnuts and bring them in and get our hammers out and crack them. <laughs> Tried to make sure there were no shells. I asked my mom to talk more about the food she remembers our family making, including my dad Steve's family in Illinois. I, I remember uh, I was thinking about growing up because we'd always, you know, we'd always go up to Paris, right? Paris, yeah. Illinois. And what have you picked up from Grandma Adams that she made? Because you have those noodles too, which I feel is oh pretty golly. distinctive. She, in East Central Illinois, where Steve grew up, his family lived. They all made these homemade egg noodles, and you roll them out very, very thin. And that was my first introduction to those noodles. And so I tried to carry that tradition all the way over into our family. Um, but also, the dressing. Steve's mom made this really good dressing. And sometimes she would make an extra batch and put oysters in it. We'd always do holidays with Kellisons too, and it usually be at Grandpa's house, or occasionally went up to the schoolhouse, or. But it was usually at Grandpa's house, and I remember you and Aunt Sue and Aunt Jamie in the kitchen, and all us cousins running around playing, often in the basement. And what did y'all cook? We would always have a turkey, and I think I would bring the dressing and the noodles, and Jamie would do macaroni salad, and we'd have green beans. Green beans was a, 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 a staple that we all loved because mom would can green beans. I remember there was usually a jello salad, too, if not two. Definitely there was. Um, mom would always fix this lime jello with the nuts and the pineapple and cottage cheese. And we all love that. So we would have that. Willie Sue would come, my aunt, your great aunt. She would come, and she always made fruit cakes. But something else we all liked was my sister Sue would bring a yellow cake, kind of like a pound cake, with caramel icing. Mason, wait a sec. Did I hear the name Willie Sue? Because I love that name. Tell me more about that side of your family. Well, Caitlin, my mom's family is from the Allegheny Highlands. It's on the Virginia-West Virginia border. Um, her family grew up on a farm outside Covington, Virginia. That's where my granddad lived, and that's where my mom's side of the family gathered every year for Christmas. You know, about 10 years ago, my dad passed away, and then we had our son um, within the space of a year, and having kids really does change how you view the holiday. Kids are awesome. Like, their energy and enthusiasm is infectious. And so you can't help but be, like, carried away on the tide of Christmas cheer when you have kids there. It's, it's made me a lot more active and engaged in thinking about family traditions. And so I loved the excuse this year to interview my mom about her memories and her traditions and how they overlap with my traditions. One thing that I really realized, though, is because I had asked her these questions, you know, in years past, I'd say, what do you remember about growing up, Mom? What, do, what was your Christmas like? And she'd say, oh, I don't remember. You know, I just, that's so far back. But by framing it 
the way we did in talking about specific food, the language of the food combined with that sense memory, I think opened up stuff because I would say like phrases like walnut and my mom would be like, oh, I forgot about all this stuff. And she'd start talking about it. I really enjoyed that conversation. So I would encourage any of our listeners, have those conversations. Talk with your parents or your kids about the Christmas cookies that you love now, that you loved as a kid. And if you want to write us and tell us about it, we're at InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. It's a great way to connect with your family and open up some of these traditions. So something that I want to ask you more about, Mason, is the jello salad. So this is kind of like a mysterious, like mythical thing for me. I again, in a German household, that was just not something I ever had, but I would see it in movies or hear about it. And I'm curious how you feel about jello salad. You know, as a kid, I loved it. It was sweet. It was basically like a dessert masquerading <laughs> as a salad. But one thing that um, struck me was how my mom actively built traditions for our family. And some of that's because her mom, my grandmother, Ruth, died in an accident the year before I was born. And I talked about the effect of how having kids, like it makes you connect because you want to provide these things. And so when my mom was bringing us up, I'm the older of two brothers. When my mom was bringing us up, she didn't have my grandmother there to make cookies with and and share with. And so, you know, she talks about how she learned from friends. She learned from cookbooks. And, and Jell-O came out of this was that sort of 50s and 60s. There's more appliances on the consumer market. There's cookbooks like the Better Homes and Gardens and magazines. And there's this whole sort of... Um, sector growing around the kitchen and making food. And I think Jell-O certainly was a consumer product that came out of that. And it's cool to see how people have applied their own spins to it. That's in a lot of ways the definition of folklore. And they've passed it down to their kids. Um, That said, I loved Jell-O as a kid. We don't really incorporate it in our meals now. So we've been talking about Jell-O because today on Inside Appalachia, we're looking back at holidays through the lens of food and other traditions from our families. We also asked you, our listeners, to share your memories. Folks sent us messages on social media, and then we called them up. This one's actually really interesting, Mason. I spoke with a woman who says she listens to Inside Appalachia. She's from Jefferson County, West Virginia. And she actually commented on our Twitter call out asking people for their holiday traditions. She is studying abroad in Germany, of all places, and she's been there now for the past year. Emma Louise Leahy is her name. So she's especially feeling kind of sentimental and reminiscent right now because she can't come home, you know, because of the pandemic. She told me about a recipe she calls cranberry salad, and it's passed down from her West Virginia side of her family. We actually make it from this handwritten recipe card that we have from my grandma. We keep her little box of recipes in the kitchen cabinet. And she wrote out all of her recipes by hand. She had this beautiful cursive handwriting. Um, Nowadays, you know, people don't learn to write like that. And it's actually kind of hard for me to read it. But uh, that's a very well-loved recipe that, that comes out every single year for Christmas and also for Thanksgiving dinner. You have to get started the day before with fixing it because uh, it has to sit overnight. Um, you need to have fresh cranberries, mandarin oranges, pecans, and if you want, apples, but it's not necessary. 
uh, the chop them up really finely. It's easiest if you use a food processor. And then it marinates overnight in brown sugar. And so that gets it really, it's, it's got a very tangy taste. Uh, it's not so much sweet. Um, you know, fresh cranberries are kind of a bit of a bitter taste. Um, oranges are also quite acidic. So the, the sugar and the acid combines to make it this really kind of wow taste in your mouth. We always like to eat it kind of in between courses uh, to clean your palate, basically. We always like to you know, serve it up on the table in a, in a glass bowl so that we can see it. It adds really this beautiful kind of red and orange pop of color to the table. Uh, and everybody looks forward to it every year. And so did you get to know your grandmother? Were you able to make it with her? Um, she died when I was five. Okay. Uh, so this is actually the these recipes and these things that she left are are kind of the way that that we know her most closely. Uh, she's still somebody that even in her physical absence from our life since she's passed on, that she's left a, a big impact on our family. And are you going to make the recipe just for yourself while you're over in Germany? Well, you know, um, I did want to make it, but as it turns out, it's very tough to find fresh cranberries in Berlin. Uh, even, you know, if you go really? to, yeah, if you go to even a high-end supermarket, it's not easy. So maybe not this year. <laughs> I wonder why. I, I wouldn't have even thought that. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that cranberries are, are quite an American thing. And, you know, cranberries are so much part of our holiday traditions creating those garlands with the popcorn and the cranberries that you sew together to put on the tree outside, all of those type of things, I kind of took them for granted, I guess, until I realized that they're not as widely available everywhere. I interviewed Clara Hazlett, a member of the Inside Appalachia Folkways Reporting Corps. And Clara talked to me about strawberry shortcake and how her family, much like <laughs> you ate Stalin, her family ate strawberry shortcake every, every morning on Christmas. I was born in a little tiny town in Pennsylvania. And we lived next to this old woman named Betsy. And she always used to make strawberry shortcake and have all the kids over. I have a big family, so there are seven kids. She never married, so she kind of took all of us kids under her wing, and she would always make strawberry shortcake for us. So I think when um, we moved to West Virginia, I was only like two or something, maybe one. My mom started making it on Christmas morning just as like a, in, in honor of her. She was an older lady and passed away, so... What struck me about Clara's stories were both the strength of her family's traditions, but how they incorporated traditions from friends and neighbors. There's another character she talked about. We called him the Groundhog Man, and I don't know if anyone else called him that, but that's what our family called him. And he would come every Christmas Eve, and he had like a big pot belly and like a big beard. It wasn't white, but he still kind of like reminded me of Santa because he would come every Christmas, and he would bring um, just a bunch of desserts. And I think he and his wife would make them together. Um, but they were, like, amazing desserts that, you know, took kind of a long time, like pumpkin rolls and nut rolls. So we wouldn't really make them often. But we would wait for him, 
to come every Christmas Eve. And one year, he never came, and we were like, where's the Groundhog Man? And he he actually got cancer and passed away. And I think maybe around Christmas time, or we just didn't know about it, because I would only see him on Christmas Eve every year. I don't really know anything about him. All I know is he is called the Groundhog Man, and he made some really good sweets. And it really, it was sad because that was part of our Christmas tradition, and um, I think we didn't realize how much he played a role in it until he wasn't there anymore. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about food and holiday traditions, including the mystery behind one listener's favorite brand of Christmas cookies. They just vanish, appear, and then disappear out of nowhere, like like the aliens took them or something. Like, I don't know where they go. <laughs> <laughs> that and more coming up in just a few. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. time is freezing time, teasing time, and squeezing time. That's the time to love. With your lady love you go, skimming all the ice and snow, silver moon above. Hear the sleigh bells ring, hear them ding-a-ling, winter, winter, when the snow is softly Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking about holiday traditions. And sometimes those traditions come in a can. I talked with Matt Milligan, and he has this love for these Royal Dansk cookies. They're like Danish shortbread cookies, and they come in that blue tin. And like he grew up with them, just the tins. He grew up with the tins, but that wasn't the part that he took away from it. The part he took away is that he actually loves these cookies. I love them, so you get a can of them, and... There's like, you know, 800 pieces almost. (laughs) (laughs) I can take a a whole can down like in one sitting, you know. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember having them like when you were a kid or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've always been around. Growing up, they've, you know, appeared every holiday usually. And then just around the house, too, because my family would use the tins as storage. So, like, a lot of times I'll see one of them and I'll open it up and I'll either expect cookies or, like, a sewing kit. (laughs) Well, and what's interesting is I feel like those cookies, it's like either you love them or you hate them. And, like, for some people, they end up just sitting around and they don't eat them. And then some people are obsessed with them. Yeah, they're like like the candy corn of Christmas. I used to work in the airport and a lot of times... People would just leave those just in the in the sitting areas, you know, still with like the, the plastic wrap around it. And I would see that like a mile away and I would just kind of wait 
wait for the passengers to leave and then just scoop it right up. <laughs> Have you always liked them? Oh, yeah. Like, they're just the best. Like, and they come in like little, you know, cup, cupcake wrappers or whatever those called. You know, like the little, little mini coffee filter looking things. You know they're good because they come in that. <laughs> for someone who hasn't tried them, how would you describe that first bite into one of those oh. cookies? Oh, man. It's like... <laughs> it sounds kind of wrong, but it's like just eating a stick of butter with sugar on top. <laughs> and especially like if you put them in the fridge for a little bit and then eat them, they're, they're just so much more delicious. So have you had any yet this season? Uh, not yet. I haven't found any in the wild yet, but <laughs> because of, of world crises, I, I have I haven't ventured out too much. I mean, do you see them like for a little bit on sale or clearance after Christmas? They just vanish, appear and then disappear out of nowhere. Like like the aliens took them or something. <laughs> like, I don't know where they go. Oh, my gosh. You have a very great way of describing these cookies. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I haven't tried them in years. So because of this conversation, I'm going to have to like go try them again and put them in the fridge so that they're a little cold. Yeah, get them a little, little cold. They're, they're great. That was listener Matt Milligan talking about his favorite Christmas cookie. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking with folks about holiday traditions. And for many of us, that does include food. The next story is about a food that's actually enjoyed year-round. Chances are pretty good you've run across it. Have you ever grabbed one of those small-to-go apple pies at a convenience store? Maybe it was in a paper bag or a cardboard sleeve. We're talking about hand pies. On its face, a hand pie seems pretty straightforward. It's just some filling wrapped in dough. But Folkways reporter Kelly Libby found that hand pie makers in Appalachia are getting creative. In a commercial kitchen in Knoxville, Tennessee, Dale Mackey is frying pies. Hand pies. When she started her business, Dale's Fried Pies, Apple was on the menu. At first, she used fresh apples. But then she started getting some advice from customers. Customers whose older relatives had used dried apples. So she tried it. It ended up making this kind of much more rich, like apple butter consistency, more concentrated in the flavor and the sweetness and the spice. And I really was like, okay, they were right. This one's the better classic apple pie. So now our main apple flavor bestseller by far is made with dried apples just because that's what folks were wanting. Dale's Fried Pies started out of a food cart at farmer's markets and festivals. Now her pies are sold frozen online. And the varieties go way beyond apple. Sweet pies, meat pies, every kind of pie. They're crisp and thick and just your size. It's heaven on a plate. We do kind of traditional flavors like apple and peach and cherry, things like that. Nectarine, pecan, old-fashioned apple, green chili chicken and pina colada. And then, you know, kind of funkier flavors like banana Nutella or like a chili mango with cardamom cream cheese or curried sweet potato, we have a mac and cheese pie, a chicken and waffles pie, whatever you can put in a pie, I'll try it. Let's go get some of Dale's fried pies, oh yeah. For some cooks, what goes in a hand pie is sometimes just what's in season. Thinking of this season with it being hunting season, I love to make this 
kind of braised venison hand pie. That's chef and farmer Mike Costello of Lost Creek Farm in Harrison County, West Virginia. I really love this smoked rabbit hand pie with some chanterelle mushrooms. It's amazing. It's like in the summertime when the chanterelles are at their peak. Peach hand pies this summer, we made so many peach hand pies. Uh, We had a lot of fresh basil in the garden this year, so we made these peach and basil hand pies that were just phenomenal. Mike likes to use what's on hand. He says some older Appalachian food traditions actually came out of a need to be thrifty. And that's something to be proud of. When you think about some of these food traditions that came out of those hard times, you know, they're incredibly rich and beautiful and they're the product not of desperation but of innovation and ingenuity. Mike says hand pies aren't uniquely Appalachian, that pocket foods are found all over the world, and that the cuisine of Appalachia has long been influenced by immigrants. Take, for instance, a kind of hand pie called pasties. Pasties are meat pies that were brought to America by Cornish miners. And the fact that you can go to more places in West Virginia, more bakeries, and buy empanadas than you can what many people would think of as traditional apple hand pies. I think that says a lot about how, you know, the region is always changing and the food traditions of the region are always changing. It's a weekday morning in Bridgeport, West Virginia, and chef Pamela DeLaude is home making empanadas. The beef is going to bring it out a little bit of juice. I love empanadas. It's one of the very popular dish in my country, in Peru. Pam has been a chef for eight years and worked in kitchens for 25. She says when she cooks, she draws inspiration from her home country of Peru and from Italy, where she has family. Then she mixes those influences with local ingredients. Pam once made catfish empanadas using fish from a West Virginia farm. She was inspired by one of her favorite Peruvian dishes, ceviche, a dish made with raw fish cured in citrus and spices. That's what my inspiration, the the two cultures, they put out together in one dish. That mixing of cultures in one dish may be the most Appalachian thing about Appalachian hand pies. They're a blend of simplicity and ingenuity, old and new, tradition and change. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kelly Libby. Special thanks to Emily Hilliard with the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council for her help with that story. We started the Folkways Project two years ago to bring folks together from across the region to report on arts and culture. We've got a third round of reporters cooking up some fun stories for next year. So if you're curious to learn more about the project and see videos from our Folkways series, we've posted that on our website, wvpublic.org. One of our Folkways reporters lives not far from me, over in Bluefield, Virginia. Connie Bailey Kitt spoke with me about a special ingredient that her family adds to a traditional Christmas food. Well, I got to ask you about this uh, gingerbread um, recipe with molasses in it. Okay, so it was like like my grandmother Bailey's recipe, and she lived over in Rock, West Virginia, and. I think that the recipe probably goes back to the 1930s. At least we, I know from my cousin that she was making it in the 1930s. 
And uh, the copy of it that I have was what my uh, uncle typed out uh, on typing paper for my mom, and it's dated March 1950. But it's... It's a really, really wonderful recipe because it's a real moist gingerbread cake, and it calls for sor- well, it calls for molasses, but the best molasses to use in it is sorghum molasses. And my cousin, uh, who has a farm over in Mercer County, West Virginia, uh, he and a bunch of his friends have made sorghum molasses for years. It's it's pretty much a three day process. He planted. Uh, about two to three acres of sorghum, and you have to harvest it before the frost if you're going to make molasses out of it. You'd have to strip off the blades, and then you have to squeeze these stalks to get out the juice, and then you cook it down in not just a big big pot, but like a really, really big pot, and then they put it over a fire and cook the juice down until it gets real syrupy and of course that's where the art is is knowing when you've cooked it down enough but it kind of looks like liquid gold I guess when you have it at the you know at the right point and then you jar it up but they made like one year 175 gallons of this stuff (laughs) and then I'd always save it for the gingerbread cake recipe you know like the kind of molasses you get in the store, the black strap, or sometimes that grandma's molasses, it's stronger, and the sorghum's not as strong. It's more mild, and it's just like perfectly, balances perfectly with the spices in the gingerbread cake. So you have like, uh, especially the ginger, you know, you have ginger and you have a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of, uh, little bit of cloves. I mean, just even listening to her describe it, Mason, I mean, I, my mouth was watering I mean, that sounds like some of the best gingerbread. Since we're talking about gingerbread, let's listen to another story recently produced by one of our Folkways reporters. Nicole Musgrave traveled to Knott County, Kentucky, where they carry on a tradition of making gingerbread during the election season. In her cozy kitchen in Hyman, Kentucky, Larue Lafferty watches over as her teenage grandson Jackson cracks the eggs for a fresh batch of gingerbread. He's been a good egg breaker since he was just about two or three years old. (laughs) I think I'll do the vanilla next. Get the right measurements. If you ask folks around Knott County who the best gingerbread bakers are, LaRue's name usually comes up. I don't really profess to be a gingerbread-making queen, but I do make a lot. Growing up, gingerbread was a year-round household staple. Anytime we went to grandmother's, she had it, and my mother made it all the time. She kept it made. Not County gingerbread isn't the crisp, snappy cookies, and it's not the moist, fluffy cake. It's somewhere in between. Bob Young is a local historian born and raised in Not County. The gingerbread as we knew it here was just glorified biscuit and full, absolutely full of molasses. Before white sugar became easily accessible in southeast Kentucky, Molasses was the primary sweetener. Every fall, sugarcane farmers hosted stir-offs. Folks gathered to watch as the sugarcane juice was boiled down to a sticky syrup, and they left with full jars to stock their pantries. Back in the kitchen, Jackson cracks open a jar of molasses. Puts in two cups of molasses. Aside from powdered ginger, the other ingredients, flour, fresh eggs, buttermilk, and lard, were things people already had on hand. That made gingerbread inexpensive, says Bob. 
gingerbread uh, was something that anybody, anybody nearly could, uh, could get. One place you were sure to find gingerbread in Knott County was at the polls on Election Day, says LaRue. The candidates, they would hire good gingerbread makers in the community to make gingerbread, and they would give it out at the polls. In the 40s and 50s, when Bob and LaRue were growing up, it was a common practice. <laughs> Republicans on this side and the Democrats on that side. By the time you voted, you'd have a handful of gingerbread. It was just a nice little way to ask for a vote. They didn't call it buying votes, but it's about what it amounted to. <laughs> Corbett Mullins, another Knott County native, remembers his grandmother as a sought-after gingerbread maker. She would go with her baskets of gingerbread to the polling grounds and hand out the gingerbread in that candidate's name. During the 1960s, Corbett says people began handing out something else. I hate to say it, but gingerbread was replaced by liquor. I mean, it was. Then in 1974, Kentucky passed a law against campaigning within 100 feet of a polling place. This was the final blow for political gingerbread. But surviving recipes may hold clues that link gingerbread and elections. Bob Young has noticed that a lot of recipes make huge batches. Why, some of those old recipes take a five-pound bag of flour. He says that's because bakers made the dessert for the masses on Election Day. LaRue's recipe makes 60 pieces and uses eight to nine cups of flour. She determines the amount as she goes, based on the batter's thickness. The hum of the mixer fills the kitchen as it works the batter. LaRue watches as her grandson Jackson adds flour. Then they check the consistency. Mm. I believe you need just a little more flour. I believe it's going to go down too fast, don't you? Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit yeah. too glossy. Yeah, a little too wet, yeah. Put about another, close to another cup. These days, the annual Knott County Gingerbread Festival celebrates gingerbread's ties to politics and features a gingerbread competition. There are lots of variations of this regional dessert, and everyone has their own preferences. Corbett, who chaired the festival for decades, says texture is key. I have had gingerbread that's been as dry as the Sahara Desert. As soon as you get it chewed up, you have to have a drink of water to, to refresh your mouth. Bob is focused on ginger. Sometimes it would almost burn your tongue. Some people liked it really hot. And that was one of the things they'll say, how hot is this? How much ginger's it got in it? Back in the kitchen, Jackson scoops batter onto a metal baking sheet. See how when he puts it down there, it kind of holds its shape and then barely starts spreading out. That's what we're looking for when we're looking at the thickness of it. Over the years, LaRue's placed in the gingerbread competition a lot. One year, she entered three batches using different recipes and I come in first place and tied myself on second. So I didn't enter anymore for a long, long time after that because I thought, well, that's good enough. <laughs> the festival was canceled this year because of the pandemic, which was disappointing for LaRue. I threatened to go up there and sit down on the street and put up a sign and have my own little festival. <laughs> These days, Knott County bakers sell gingerbread to fundraise for local causes and to earn extra cash. LaRue's daughter-in-law has made close to 4,000 pieces of gingerbread this year, selling enough to raise nearly $2,000 for her church. Jackson sold the batch he's making today to a relative. One year, he made enough to buy himself a bike. LaRue's glad her grandchildren are continuing the Knott County gingerbread tradition 
And it gives her comfort to know they have a skill they can rely on if they need to. Later on, uh, when they get a little older and uh, maybe they need some extra cash, maybe they can make some gingerbread be a good, clean way to make a little extra money. The kitchen is fragrant with the mingling of ginger, cinnamon, and clove. The oven timer goes off, and LaRue takes out the pan. Once the gingerbread cools, Jackson takes a bite and assesses his work. I think it turned out pretty good. It's uh, it's not too dry, but it's still moist. And it's still got the crispy edges on it, which I really like on gingerbread. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Knott County, Kentucky. You know, I've heard a lot of stories over the years about how political machines in Appalachia used to buy votes, using everything from moonshine, of course, to plain old walking around money. But that's the first time I've ever heard about gingerbread being used that way. Well, Caitlin, how about to close things out? Let's share one more message from a listener. And another tradition that I heard about that's like been passed down through the family was from Julie Davis. She lives in Charleston. And she reached out to me on Facebook, and this one isn't food, but it involves Santa stickers. It's like stickers of of Santa. This tradition comes from her dad, and it was from when he was really young. It was during World War II. His father had just passed away, and his mother, you know, was trying to give the kids some kind of holiday celebration, but it was kind of a sad time and they didn't have a lot of money. And so it was Christmas Eve, they're decorating the house and Julie's dad had this Santa sticker and there was a mirror in the living room and he stuck the sticker on the mirror. It's just a Santa face, his lovely endearing face. And his mother had no problems with that. They were trying to celebrate and you know, bring joy in their home. Um, and then it started. So every year on Christmas Eve, um, it became a, a little ceremony where they put a new Santa sticker on the mirror. Oh, my gosh. And so then he passed that down to you. And do you remember doing that as a kid? And was it exciting? Absolutely. So what happened from there? Each year they would do that. They would place the Santa sticker on that mirror um, every Christmas Eve. They had the Davis family holiday parties at my grandmother's house, at his mom's house. And that continued um, throughout her life. We would always gather at her house on Christmas Eve. And one of the things we did was someone got to put the Santa sticker on the mirror. So next year will be the 80th anniversary of doing it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's like this this one mirror. It's not incredibly large. But so it's almost full. So how would you guys decide who gets to put the sticker up? It started out, I think, the oldest. And then each year, the next person in line, chronologically in age, would get to do it until eventually everyone in the family got a chance to do it. <laughs> and it, where it was one of those things, it was just like part of, you know, you gather with your family and you're all excited. And we crammed into the little, you know, little apartment. And it was amazing because you're just, you know, you're all with family and that's what's important. And this was a big deal. Like, it was really fun. And you're like, oh, you get to do it this year. And you're, you know, like, it's like, yeah. wanting to place it right. And they take a picture. And it was just really exciting. And it, it's one of those things that I'm sure so many people have these unique things that they do that just started on a whim. And anyone else is like, what? <laughs> like, what do you do? It's <laughs> like, no, no, you don't get it. It's really great. <laughs> <laughs> and do you remember... When it was your turn to place the sticker, I mean, 
it must have felt like a very big deal. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. You felt really honored, like, oh, I get to do it now. <laughs> Being a part of a family is, you know, it's just such a wonderful thing to have. And that you get to place the Santa sticker, like, yeah, it's my turn. It, it you know, just one of those things that you you feel real excited and proud that, okay, it's my turn. I get to do it, you know, like, especially if you're younger. That's Julie Davis talking about her family's Santa sticker tradition. I, I'd never heard of that before, but I, I really love it. And it's something so simple, but yet really special. And you can tell in how Julie talks about it that it's meant a lot to the Davis family. Uh, unfortunately, Julie said this year, because of pandemic times, there won't be a Santa sticker. But next year's the 80th year. So there's. she said it's going to be a big, big celebration. Um, <laughs> It's amazing what can come out of these conversations. I know I mentioned it earlier, but seriously, sit down with a family member over the holiday break and ask them what they remember about food growing up and to talk about your shared memories of food. It's just awesome what you can learn when you get them talking. And again, if you want to share your traditions with us, we'd love to hear them. Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. And happy holidays to all of you listening out there. And to you, Caitlin. Thanks, Mason. Happy holidays to you and your family. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Rich Collins Trio, Vortex, Blue Dot Sessions, Andrew Bird, Tim Marima at DailyYonder.com, and Corey Chisel as heard on Mountain Stage. Roxy Todd is our producer, Eric Douglas is our associate producer, and our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week, and our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia, and my Twitter handle is at Miss underscore CTAN. That's M-I-S-S underscore C-T-A-N. I'm at Mason Adams, M-A-S-O-N-A-T-O-M-S. You can also send us an email at InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. We even love real letters. You can send them to us at 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.